In the holy name of Jesus, amen. Please be seated. Wake up! That is the sign of Advent. This is not pre-Christmas. This is not counting down amidst fa-la-la-la-la. You just heard in the prayer of the church, stir up our hearts, O Lord, and come. It's dreary. It's rainy. You're a little sleepy from too much turkey. Wake up. That is the sign of Advent. Happy new church year, by the way. As we begin a new church year, we don't look forward to Christmas. We look forward to anticipating and praying of Jesus' second coming, his second advent. And we hear about his first advent, yes, in four weeks, with his triumphal birth given to us for the life of the world. But today, we also hear about his coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It's not Lent, Pastor. Why are we having this text today? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Why don't we hear about the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary? Why don't we hear about some pre-Christmas texts? That's not what this season is about. This is Advent. It goes against the grain. It shows that we might be a little weird from the rest of society, but it is something to stir us up and remind us that he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. When I was a middle school student, my brother wanted to go on spring break to Daytona Beach. My parents relented and agreed, so we drove down to sunny Daytona from the frigid and thawing hinterlands of Indiana. Let's just say that Daytona Beach for spring break is not much of a break or a vacation. It is downright nuts. You can probably relate. This whole scene in Jerusalem today, in our gospel reading, this whole scene might look very much like Daytona Beach. The question might pop up in the midst of all of this, who in the world is in charge here? Jerusalem is filled to the brim with pilgrims, who are there for the Passover. The ancient historian Josephus tells us that there were probably over two million people who would come to Israel, to Jerusalem, to celebrate Israel's liberation from slavery. But on a normal day and week, the population of Jerusalem at the time was like the population of Little Rock. Could you imagine two million people showing up here in Little Rock? Could you imagine what 6.30 and 4.30 would be like? Could you imagine trying to rent a car or get a hotel room or anything else? The city would be gridlocked. And that's how I want you to view Palm Sunday. You get it, though. If you need something in Jerusalem, you're going to have to bring it yourself. There's not going to be a lot of stuff that's extra around, and you probably also need to be careful. There were those who were trying to swindle people out of their money. That's what we hear about later on from today with the money changers in the temple that Jesus kicks out. They know that people aren't coming to Jerusalem with the proper sacrifices, so they like to sell the animals to make a buck off the backs of the pilgrims. And so it seems to me 
to be pure insanity that Jesus would pick this day of all the days to send his disciples into the village and ask for not just one, but two beasts of burden. Two million people are in Little Rock. Hey, I don't need just one car to rent. I need two. Get it? One maybe, but two? Come on. Oh, and by the way, just say that the Lord needs them. They'll hand you the keys, they'll hand you the reins, and you just take them. At this point, the disciples must have truly trusted Jesus because when he says to do something, it happens. At the wedding at Cana, when they run out of wine, the, mar the party looks to be coming to a close, and Mary, his mother, says, do what he says, and they do it. Problem solved, on with the festivities. When Jesus looks at his disciples with a crowd of over 5,000 people, he says, how are we going to feed all of these people? They find a boy with some fish and bread, and Jesus feeds the people. You should trust Jesus. He knows what he's doing, even when it seems nearly impossible. Keep that in mind. Jesus, twice during Holy Week, sends his disciples to a seemingly random person to ask for a horse and a donkey. First, the donkey and the colt. Second, he looks for a room to eat his Passover. You would have to make all sorts of plans months in advance. You'd have to have reservations contracted. You don't just walk into Jerusalem with well over two million people and find a mode of transportation and a place to have a meal with your family. You have to plan these things. So who in the world is in charge? I kind of think that Jesus did have these things planned, and they're not just seemingly random people. The disciples don't know, and we're not told at all who these people are, but personally, I think they are expecting Jesus and the disciples. Nothing ever happens just as happenstance. Whatever the case may be, Jesus is in complete control of the events of his last week of his life. Just in a few short days from hearing this today, he would be crucified and appear to be completely powerless. The disciples would see Jesus on the cross, they would hear about it, and they would be asking, who's in charge here? What can a man nailed on the cross do but suffer? Crucifixion not only robs you of your life in a way that nothing else really does, it looks like Jesus has become weak. It looks like he's lost control. He is even taken down from the cross and his lifeless body cradled by Mary, buried by Joseph and Arimathea with a borrowed tomb. A stone is rolled to the mouth of the tomb, sealed shut and guarded by the soldiers. Where is your God now? Who's in charge here? Sound familiar? I'm sure it does. Who's in charge here? We have lost control in the world. What is inflation today? I don't know. The price of gas, up, down, up, down. It's all over the place. Then we have the continuing moral decay of society that sanctifies and glorifies the indulgence of the flesh. On top of that, you have people who don't do what they say they are going to do. When you join this congregation, however many years ago, 
when you were confirmed, you actually said that you were going to stick with us, even when things were bad. And yet there are those of us who now, even post-pandemic, who are still gone. Some clearly can't make it for good reasons. Others, we just don't know. How many have been baptized at this font, clothed with Christ, brought into this fellowship, and we all say, Amen, we welcome you in the name of the Lord, and then they're gone. Who's in charge here? I'm not complaining about my life as a pastor. Don't worry about that. It's not as if it isn't any worse than yours, but it does make us stop and think. You've got it too, don't you? Promises that have been made but broken, wedding vows ignored, children forsaking their parents, all sorts of miserable things, chaos, the world running out of order, and what about your body? What about your body? I wake up now with these weather changes and my back says, I ain't taking this anymore. You are crooked, you are breaking down, your bodies are rebelling against yourself. Failed plans and dead dreams, what is the whole point of this anyways? Who's in charge? You can understand then why the people of Jerusalem shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna is not praise the Lord, Hosanna is, Lord, save us now. Get on with it. Take care of it. Lord, save us now from these Romans, from this crooked and dying world. You know what you're doing. Hosanna. This ship is going down, Jesus, and it looks like maybe he could help. Even in the crowded chaos of over two million people, he finds a donkey and a colt in an open room. He's not worried. He's not trembling before the disordered lives. He would later on sweat blood, praying that there might be some other way, but praying for you as well. But there's not another way, and he goes as a lamb innocent to slaughter, calm and defenseless. The one who walked upon the waters, who commanded the water to whine, who defied Satan, who healed the sick, who calmed the stormy seas, who anointed people, who raised people from the dead, knows what he's doing. As the babe born of Bethlehem lays down his life for you. No one takes this from him. He knows what he's doing, even in Jerusalem, even today. When you ask, and I ask, Who's in charge here? This all today in the face of Advent and all of the fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la, this doesn't make any sense. Where's the Christmas spirit? There are churches that are having multiple Christmas spirity sermons and sermon series for the next three or four weeks. There are churches on Christmas Day, probably 95% of them, that will be closed. We'll be here celebrating God's wondrous gift in word and sacrament. Christmas is a time for family, but it's also why Jesus has come. It's foolishness to the world, but he knows what he's doing. He knew then and he knows now for you. 
The cross and the death are the only portal to resurrection and new life. Your baptism is only the beginning of a new life, as much as Adam's first breath was gifted to him by Christ. You heard the words of forgiveness today, a trumpet horn and salvation proclamation of the world to come. In the face of Christmas and all of its secular ideas, we are reminded in Advent that Jesus is coming to us on the last day, but he's also here right now. Wherever two or three are gathered in my midst, there I am. Christ Jesus is coming to us even now. His very words spoken by his soldiers in a language unknown to this chaotic and dying world. A world that does not think about forgiveness or even that it might be possible and certainly not wise. You try it. Try forgiving the unforgivable. You must forgive because you will not be able to forget. That's the one thing I think at times we forget about. Forget about forgetting. You must forgive because you are always not going to forget what's been done. And forgiveness covers a multitude of sins. And yes, this new world of the kingdom on earth comes into being here at the altar where we will sing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He does not come with a donkey and a colt. By the way, why a donkey and a colt? The donkey was a sign of the king of Israel. You heard about the king of Israel in the Old Testament riding on a donkey. If they saw a king riding a donkey, that was the king of Israel. The colt was a sign of the unbelieving Gentiles who would come to receive and believe in Christ. They had not been trained or given this faith, but yet, nonetheless, there is Jesus showing mercy on them as well. And he comes to us today in the waters, in the word, in the bread and wine, just as Jesus directed his disciples, just as he directs you and me. They did what he said, they obeyed him. And why can't we just obey him as well? He says to you, peace, be still, do not worry, and what do we do? We find all the reasons to worry. He says, love one another, and we find all the reasons why we don't have to, or we think about the things that have been done against us. And he looks at us, not condemning us, but he does look at you and me and say, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? Listen to him and do what he says. Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Take, drink, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins and the strengthening of faith. It is right here in the foolishness of this altar that Jesus is in charge and ordering your days and your deeds by his peace. And even if we don't know what's going on, even if we're sitting here coming up with the questions, are you truly in charge? Because this isn't working out or I'm worried about this. He calls you his children, his disciples. And he says, in the midst of all this, remember what I've done. Yes, even right before Christmas, we are focusing 
on his death and his resurrection. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Love it. Even in Advent. Awkward, but it works. The disciples did as Jesus directed them. They did it. And I'm kind of obsessed with this recently. Why don't we do what Jesus says? I'm obsessed with this because I look at my own life and I don't do what he says. I don't. And I'm standing up here talking to you about this. Why won't we forgive? Why aren't we devoted to his word which gives life? Why don't we insist on all of these things be given to us more and more? It often happens that when somebody comes to visit me at the church or calls me up on the phone with a problem, people say, I don't mean to bother you, Pastor. You're very busy. But they're looking for comfort. They're looking even for the body and blood of Jesus. And me being too busy for that, there is nothing that could be further from the truth. I don't like making reports for meetings and keep a schedule of Zoom meetings on the calendar. Ask anybody in the leadership here at the church. I'm really bad at writing reports and keeping that stuff together. I don't like it. I know I have to do it, but I'm terrible at it. I am simply here to preach the word and deliver the sacraments to you. Everything else that I do is important, but it is secondary. The devil wants you to think, don't bother the pastor. Even if you need him, want to reach out to him. The devil says, oh, he's too busy and you wouldn't want to bother him. Please take me out of the paperwork. Jesus' disciples do what he says. And let's be the one church that does what he says. And if you are alone and no one else does what Jesus says, who cares? What's the alternative? Follow this dead world into the grave where you won't even remember what you got for Christmas next year? Following the true grave prepared for you, following you all around, or following the one who finds a donkey and a colt. Find the one who has seek to save that which is lost. Find the one and follow the one who has found you and me. No matter what you have said and done or undone in life. Follow the one who knows where to eat, who has prepared this place for you, who is buried and overcomes death. Follow the one who has come and who is quickly to come. You will find him at his altar, that where he is, he may bring you to himself. And all that we can say in the end is, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. To Christ alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.